Can I have a seat? And how are you guys doing? Good, decent, kind of okay. I'm doing well, thanks for asking. Um, my name is Jacob, if we haven't met, and I have the joy of serving on staff here at City Light uh, with City Light U with some of the Hispanic, Spanish ministry stuff going on. And I'm super excited to, to be able to share with you guys tonight. We're going to continue um, in our series through the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples um, as they were sitting on a mountain, hence the name Sermon on the Mount. So tonight we're going to be in the verses that were just read, and I'm excited to share a message that's called The Fulfillment of the Law. The Fulfillment of the Law. And tonight, through our text, we're going to see one main idea that we're going to put up on the screen, and it's this. Jesus fulfilled the law so we can follow the law. Jesus fulfilled the law so we can follow the law. And we're going to get right into it because we've got a lot of good stuff to talk about. Um, Let me read the first two verses again, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says this. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So if you guys are taking notes, I've got two points tonight. The first one is this. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law the law. So from the beginning of time, God created humans in his image, and he began to, to reveal himself to us. And, and over the years, God has revealed himself in different ways um, through different people because of where they are at in history. Where we are right now, we're on the side of history where we get to look back at Jesus. We get to look back at his life, his death, his resurrection, and we get to see in Jesus what God is like, because Jesus is God. But for thousands of years before Jesus came to earth, they weren't able to look back at Jesus' life because Jesus had not yet come to earth. And so one of the main ways that the people learned about God was through his law. God gave them his law. And the entire Old Testament of our Bible today is made up of what Jesus refers to as the law and the prophets. And these are, these are books, these are stories they're, they're full of commandments. They're full of miracles. They're full of God showing his power and his love for his people. And they're full of instructions that revealed to the people of God who God is and what God cares about. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to, to instruct his disciples, um, he tells them different things like, you've heard it said, but I say. And so there's this question like, like, is God actually, is Jesus actually here to fulfill the law, or is he just going to come and give us some more rules that we have to live by? But Jesus, at the beginning of this sermon, makes it so clear. He says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He says, I came to fulfill everything that the Old Testament pointed to. So in a culture, in Jesus' day, that was so caught up with, with being religious, so caught up in following the religious rules, Jesus comes on and he says, I'm going to show you what following the law actually looks like. Jesus is the fulfillment of every aspect that we read in the Old Testament. And so if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that there's like a ton of these interesting rules and interesting laws that, that we read about. And while some of them are easy to understand, others of them are just not. And we, we've divided the, the law into to three sections um, to help us kind of categorize the different laws that we read about. First, we've got the moral law. 
which are laws that God gives like um, don't commit adultery, don't murder. They're laws that, that have to do with morality that are very applicable for, for us today. Then we have the civil law, which are things like, um, like God's commands to, to love and provide for the foreigner that lives among you. God says, I love the foreigner. I want to provide for them. And so you, as my people, provide for the foreigner. Um, there's laws about how to deal with the poor in the community. They're civil laws. And then there are ceremonial laws. Those are the laws that we read about, about animal sacrifices, um, different festivals that God put in place, and um, those are categorized as ceremonial laws. But the point of all of that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of every aspect of the law. See, Jesus was morally perfect, so he fulfilled the moral law. Jesus perfectly loved the foreigner. Jesus perfectly loved the poor, so he fulfilled the civil law. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that every Old Testament sacrifice pointed to. So Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial laws. That's why Jesus is able to say that not an iota, not a dot, basically no part of the law is going to pass away until I fulfill it. So this means that Jesus came to fulfill the, the confusing laws just as much as he came to fulfill the laws that are, are simple to understand. And so I want to spend a little bit of time asking the question, what do we do when we read laws in the Old Testament that are difficult to understand? Like there are some times when I read the Old Testament, I'm like, what in the world is he saying? And why am I even spending my time reading about not boiling a goat in its mother's milk, right? Like why, why, why am I reading this? Well, if we look at the law and we meditate on the law and we ask God what the heart of the law is, he's going to show it to us. And, and this is exactly what, what Jesus is going to do in the coming weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. He gets to the heart, to the purpose of the law. It's not just about the words, it's about the heart behind it, the motivation behind it. He's going to show us Jesus is the purpose for which each law was written. And tonight, because we have some time and we, we, we see that Jesus came to fulfill all of the Old Testament laws, I want to give you an example of how to read Old Testament law. Because I believe that, that when we understand how to read Old, Test Old Testament law, it's going to do two things for us. First, it's going to help us know so much more about who God is and about what's important to him. But it's also going to set us up well for the weeks to come as we read more about the law in the Sermon on the Mount. So, we're going to do this. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And this is a chapter in the Old Testament that's full of a bunch of confusing laws. There are six laws that we read, and, but I want to show you that, that these laws are not just random laws that are put together. They're actually together in one chapter with the purpose of showing in six different ways that God cares for the vulnerable, that God cares for the vulnerable. And then I want to show you how Jesus has fulfilled all six of these laws in the New Testament. So, you ready? We're going to have the, the, the passage on the screen as well, if you want to follow along there. It's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. Say this, If there is a dispute between men, and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down, and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded 
in your sight. So in this law, it's clear that there is someone who is guilty, right? And God says, yes, the guilty person for their crime should be punished. And they're going to be punished according to, to the degree of their crime. But you notice that he says 40 stripes can be given. In other words, he can be beaten 40 times, but he cannot be beaten more than 40 times. Why is that? Well, because if you go on beating him, it says he'll be degraded in your sight. Basically, what happens is the guy's laying on the ground, you're beating him, and as he continues to get beaten, what happens? Well, you bleed a ton, your, your back opens up, right? And, and basically, at some point, you're going to become unconscious from the pain, from the blood loss. And so God says, while, yes, he should be punished for his crime, he's still a human being, and I still love him, and you still need to love him, and you still need to... To, to be careful and, and help him because he's in a vulnerable position, right? The moment that it's past 40 lashes and he's unconscious and he's bleeding out, he's vulnerable. So God says, I still care for him. Don't forget the fact that he's a human, okay? So there's one example, God caring for this vulnerable criminal. Next, verse four, it says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, so that kind of seems like a weird transition, right? Like, don't dehumanize this guy, and then don't put a muzzle on your ox. But what happens in this situation? Well, an ox is, is an animal that works the field, right? He's working the field. He's, he's going to be working for an owner and, and plowing the field. And so what God says in this law is, let the ox eat. He's going to be in the field. He's going to be plowing it. Let him eat. He's vulnerable, right? He's stuck. He can't, he can't if he's got a muzzle on his mouth, he can't eat. So he's working for you. He's a vulnerable ox. Let the ox eat. God cares for vulnerable humans. He also cares for vulnerable animals. Verses 5 through 10. They say this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, and his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off his sandal, off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. That's like a Bible time insult. Okay, so this is, this is what's called the law of leveret marriage. And the reason the law of leveret marriage exists is because in those days, a family's lineage, a family's line was, was everything. It, it meant financial security. They didn't have social security provided by the government that day. So it meant that, that as you grow old, the, the, the children, the son that you have can provide for you um, in your old age. And so for this woman, she lost her husband. Her husband died, and she had no son. So in other words, she was completely alone in this culture. She honestly, for lack of a better term, was as good as dead in this culture. She was completely alone. She was like the definition of vulnerable. And so God says, I care for that woman. So what I'm going to do is have the, the dead husband's brother 
be able to, to marry this woman, to sleep with her, to provide her with a son, so that then as she grows old, she has a son to, to continue her father's name and to, to provide for her financially and to provide her um, with social security. And that's why God makes it so serious when he says, if this brother refuses to do that, then you should spit in his face and call his house the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Because if the only reason the, hus- the, the brother of the dead husband wouldn't fulfill his duty in this way is if he wanted to keep his brother's possessions and his brother's money and his brother's land all to himself. So in other words, the only reason he wouldn't uh, do, this, do this thing as the duty of the brother-in-law is if he wanted to take advantage of this vulnerable widow and use her to his advantage so that he could have what was rightfully hers. So again, God says, I care for the vulnerable widow. This next one's interesting. I'll go over it quickly. When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. Basically, what he's saying here is a man's private parts are vulnerable, okay? It's the Bible. I'm just saying what the Bible says. And so this law makes it clear that God cares for that, right? And he's saying that, that even if, if these guys are fighting, don't take advantage of this guy in his vulnerable position. Okay, moving on. Verses 13 to 16. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you should have, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. So this law is talking about the buyer and seller relationship. And he's saying that if the seller has an uneven weighing system, basically if the seller says, here, I'm going to give you five pounds of grain, but his scales are, are off, and it's actually maybe three pounds of grain, then God says that that's an abomination, because what is he doing? He's lying to the vulnerable seller who says, I'm going to, uh, I, I have to take the price, and I have to take the amount of the grain that you tell me that you're going to give me. I have to trust you. But if the weights are uneven, what's happening? He's being taken advantage of, and he's basically paying way more than he should be paying for what he's getting. So God says, I care for you as a, as a buyer, and I take it very seriously that you guys deal justly with, with each other. And then finally, verses 17 to 19, this is the, the last law that we're going to talk about. He says, remember what Am- Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And this is probably the most clear example in this whole chapter of God's incredible care for the vulnerable and of God's response to people who take advantage of the vulnerable. So what Amalek did to Israel is Israel was leaving Egypt in a big caravan and the, um, the people toward the back of the Israelite caravan were the people that could not keep up with the crowd, right? So they would be pregnant women. They would be the elderly. They would be kids. They would be anyone who was sick. 
basically these people that, that cannot defend themselves. And so Amalek, this, this enemy army, comes up behind Israel, and they kill the tail of the Israelite army. Basically, they kill all the vulnerable people of Israel, right? Like, that, you don't do that. And, and so God says, in response, he says, okay, now Israel, because they did that, because they acted unjustly, because they took advantage of you and killed all of your vulnerable people, blot out their memory from under heaven. See, God cares for the vulnerable. So what we see in these six laws in Deuteronomy 25 is that God, he doesn't play around with people that, that dishonor and mistreat the vulnerable. Professor Scott Booth, he's a professor at a local school, he says, if you want the most efficient way to anger God, pick on the vulnerable and use them to your advantage. And so here's why I spent a few minutes talking about those laws. One, I wanted to help you learn more about how to read Old Testament law, but also I want to show you that Jesus fulfilled those laws. See, just as God clearly showed his love and his care for vulnerable people and vulnerable animals in Deuteronomy 25, the Son of God, when he came to earth, Jesus, he clearly showed his love and his care for the vulnerable here on earth. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, and one way he did that was that he came to you and to me. Who are we? We are the vulnerable. We are the vulnerable sinners that are headed to an eternity apart from God in hell. And what did Jesus do? He came and he rescued us. Friends, you and I were just as guilty, as, or just as vulnerable as the guilty man being beaten, just as vulnerable as the working ox, the childless widow, the, the fighting man, the buyer of goods, and the tail of the Israelite caravan. We were dead in our sins. We were without God and without hope in the world. And then Jesus came to earth to rescue us, to rescue the vulnerable. Jesus came to fulfill the law by living a life that was 100% in line with the heart of the law of God. He never sinned. He perfectly represented God, and he did all that God sent him to earth to do. And then, because of his love, he willingly goes to the cross. He dies a criminal's death. He's buried. And then three days later, Jesus folds the little wrapping that's around his head and walks out of his own tomb showing that he is victorious over sin, over hell, over the grave, and now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus do all of that? He did it to fulfill the law. He did it to rescue the vulnerable. He did it to save us. Because God cares for the vulnerable, he sent his only son, that whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And this is the good news of, our, of the gospel, of the gospel that we believe as children of God, that we are bound by sin and shame, but Jesus came to rescue us and to restore us. And now, by simply turning from our sins and placing our faith in Jesus as the only one who can forgive us and the only one who can bring us into right relationship with God, the Bible promises that we are made new, that we're no longer vulnerable to the condemnation of our sins. We're no longer destined to a shame-filled eternity in, in hell, but rather we're new creations that are crowned with glory. We're welcomed into the family of God. We have a seat at the king's table. We're children of God, all because Jesus fulfilled the law, all because Jesus came to rescue us as vulnerable sinners. And so once we receive this good news by faith, once we say yes to Jesus and we place our faith in him, 
then the Bible teaches that we also become Christ's ambassadors. We become his representatives on earth. And as representatives of God, we get to follow the law. Remember the the main sentence, Jesus fulfilled the law so we can follow the law. I want to show you this from Matthew 5, again, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes on one one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the second truth that we find tonight is this. We can follow the law. We can follow the law. I'm going to take a drink. So maybe this point sounds a little bit confusing because in a lot of Christian circles, we we think that the law is just purely bad, right? We're told to, to reject the law and to just live by faith. And I cannot be clear enough that the only way, the only way to be made right with God is through faith in Jesus, right? The law shows us our sin, we recognize it, and we place our faith in Jesus, and like that, we are made right with God. But I would not be teaching the Bible correctly if I told you to just stay away from the law and to reject it completely because in the law, again, we see more of who God is and we see more of what God cares about. That's why in verse 19, Jesus says, do and teach the commandments of God. We have a quote. I want to put it up on the screen. It's from a pastor named David Guzik, and he says this. The law sends us to Jesus to be justified because it shows us our inability to please God in ourselves. But after we come to Jesus, he sends us back to the law to learn the heart of God for our conduct and sanctification. So again, the law shows us who God is. It shows us what God cares about. And as his ambassadors on earth, that's important for us to know, right? We want to know what God cares about because we want to care about the same things. Imagine if you were a teacher's assistant in in your class and and your job was to represent your teacher well by grading papers. And the teacher um, tells you that, listen, I have one requirement for this paper. It's very simple. I want to know that the students know how to use APA formatting. So they say, if the students use APA formatting correct, give them a good grade. If they don't, don't. And you say, okay, I got you. But like a lot of people, you don't care at all about APA formatting. So you read these papers, and, and you get to a paper that is so well-written. It's, it's easy to read. It flows well. You learn from it. But there's no in-text citations, and the works cited page at the end is in MLA formatting. And so what happens? You say, man, that was a really good paper. I'm going to give them 100%. And you give them 100%. Well, what happens when the teacher sees that grade? They'll have a right to be upset. They'll have a right to confront you, right? Because what happened? You didn't represent them well. You didn't care about what the teacher cared about. Instead, you did what you wanted to do, what you thought was right. And yet, how often do we do that same exact thing with God? Where we choose our own way, we do what pleases us, we do what we think is right, and we don't even think about him in the process. We don't even think about what he cares about. And yet, he calls us his 
ambassadors on earth. So as God's ambassadors, we have to know what he cares about in order to represent him well. And so we need to read the Bible. We need to study the Bible. We need to know Jesus. We need to know what Jesus cares about. And then we need to care about the same things. And I know sometimes the, the thought of, of reading the Bible, is, as you look at it, it's like, man, that's a really big book. It's intimidating. But I can tell you that there is no greater joy than getting to know God through his word. I can honestly say, I was telling someone this today, that, that the more I study the Bible, the more I read the Bible, even the Old Testament, I am like mind blown by how well it's written and by how well God has, has weaved all these parts together, right? It's absolutely incredible. And it's like, it's like an endless treasure. That's why David, in the Psalms, he can say, he says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. That's why Psalm 1 says that, that the man who delights in the law of the Lord is blessed. Because in the word of God, we learn more about who God is, more about what God cares about. So the law, the law is important. Jesus here, it says, teach and do the law. But I want to give one example of, of what that looks like um, in, our, in our modern day lives. And I want to use an example of how the Apostle Paul did it. So Deuteronomy 25, 4, we read it earlier. It's the law that says you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Right? Seems like a very interesting law. We talked about it a little bit. And, and we talked about how if the ox is working for you, then you should provide for the ox. You should let the ox eat as it works in the field. But then, if we go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's a, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a young pastor named Timothy in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And he says something that's interesting. Verses 17 and 18. He says, Let the elders, or the pastors, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Interesting, right? It's that same verse. And so if, if, the, verse, if, the, if the law in the Old Testament was simply just talking about oxen, then there's no reason why Paul should, should quote it here, right? But we know that the heart of the law is what? Provide for the laborer. And so here, Paul, the apostle, is teaching Timothy, he's teaching him how to do what is written in the law. Paul is doing exactly what Jesus commands us to do here in Matthew chapter 5, to teach and to do the law. And so using this Old Testament law, this one verse, Paul is saying that here's the heart of the law. It's that the, the, the laborer deserves his wages, and he's applying it to the context of pastors in the local church. Now, I'm a little offended that he compares pastors to animals. John, I don't think you're an animal, just for the record. But if you were, oxen are strong animals, so um, at least you're not like a snake or something. But the point of the law is clear, right? The point of the law is that an ox deserves to eat, and so too do pastors in the local church. Paul tells Timothy that they're working hard, they're laboring in the Word of God, they're committing themselves to preaching and to teaching the word of God. They're caring, caring for the souls of people in their congregation. And this is no light task. It's hard work. And so they deserve to be compensated for their work. Just as the ox deserves grain, so too the laborer deserves his wages. 
So how can we personally apply this law today? Well, we can give generously to the local church that we call home. God has graciously given so much to us in his son, so we can be people who give generously of our time, of our talents, and of our treasure. And we can teach others to do the same. Teaching and obeying the law. And we're going to see more examples of this next week as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to close by addressing the difficult thing that Jesus says in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this is an incredibly difficult saying because the Pharisees in this day were the religious leaders that were known for one thing. They were the law keepers. They were the ones who kept all of the rules. In fact, they were so concerned with keeping the law of God that they made additional rules to keep them away from even possibly getting close to violating the law. So like today, they would probably not drive a car out of fear that if they drive a car, they might get too close to breaking the speed limit law. Like that's not an exaggeration. These guys had so many rules in addition to the laws because what? They wanted to make sure they did not break the law of God. And so now Jesus says, unless you're more righteous than them, you're never going to enter my kingdom. Of, you're never going to enter my kingdom. And so we look at that and we say, how in the world can we be more righteous than the most religious, the most rule-keeping people? Here's the key. The righteousness that Jesus is after is not an outward rule-following righteousness. Jesus is after a righteousness of the heart. Jesus is after a righteousness of the heart. See, the, the Pharisees were, were so proud of their rule-following. They were so proud of their ability to, to keep the law, and, and people around them thought highly of them. They would look at these religious leaders. They would say, man, they have it going on. They are the best. And Jesus says, I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed. Why? Because their hearts were far from God. And so today, Jesus says the same thing that he would say back then. I want your heart. I don't need your rule following. I want your heart. See, see, we can do all of the right things. We can follow all of the religious rules. We can even obey what we read in the Bible. We can care about what God cares about. But if we have no faith in Jesus, if we have no love for Jesus and no desire to grow in our relationship with Jesus, then we've missed the entire point. And can I be the first to admit that I'm really good at doing this? I'm really good at, at playing the church game and forgetting Jesus in the process. I've, I've been a Christian and, and been, in, my, been in, a, in a church setting for pretty much my whole entire life. And so I've learned how to act and I know what to say in order to sound like a good Christian. But I can easily look like a good Christian without loving Jesus. And that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. I remember in my high school years, I was in a setting that was constantly talking about the, the, the need to, to read the Word of God, right? And so in an attempt to fit in, what did I do? I read the Word of God. I talked about reading the Word of God. I told people what I read in the Word of God. And I was proud of it. But what I recognized is that I was forgetting Jesus and I was forgetting God's grace in the midst of all of my reading of the Bible. I was reading the Bible to learn how to live, to learn how to fit into a Christian circle that I was in. And I, I fell into the trap that the Pharisees fell into. They started well. They wanted to honor God, right? That's why they didn't want to break God's law. But they had no affection for Jesus. 
And when God revealed this to me, I was heartbroken because I realized that I had rejected him as my first love, right? I had said, yeah, Jesus, you're great, but I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make a name for myself, and I want to be looked at, and I'm going to use you. Instead of loving you, I'm going to use you as a means to fit in and a means to be accepted. But the good news is that Jesus convicted me of that sin, and he forgave me of that sin. He washed it away, and and he gave me a new heart, a heart of love for him that says, God, I love you, and so I want to read your word. I love you, so I want to obey you. I love you, so I want to grow in my relationship with you. And guess what? I was doing a lot of the exact same things, right? I was still reading the Bible. I was still talking about reading the Bible. I was still sharing with people what I read in the Bible, but what changed? My heart. It was happening with a different heart actually loving the Lord, actually wanting to follow him. And I can give testimony right now that Jesus rescued me from a season of following the rules and brought me into a life of following Jesus. And there's no place that I would rather be. So maybe tonight you're, you're in a season where that's really honestly where you're at. You're say, you say, I'm concerned with following the rules, and honestly, I'm not really even thinking about following Jesus. Maybe you're really good at saying the right things, Maybe you're really good at doing the right things, but if you're honest, you don't really trust Jesus and you don't really have a love for him in your heart. Maybe you can't even remember the last time that that you actually thought about Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. Or maybe you just never placed your faith in him to start with. See, if you're simply obeying the rules without trusting in Jesus, then your righteousness at its very best is the righteousness of the Pharisees. And what does Jesus say about that righteousness? He says that it will not get you into the kingdom of God. But if you would humble yourself and confess your sin to God and confess the fact that you have been trying to follow the rules and do all of the right things as a way to get in right standing with God, if you'll ask his forgiveness and if you'll place your faith in Jesus as the only righteous one, the only one who fulfilled the law, the only one who can make you right with God, that he died for you, that he rose from the dead, then the Bible promises that God will save you. The Bible promises that God will give you a new heart, that you'll be a new creation. And so he'll give you new love for him, a new desire to obey him, and he'll welcome you with open arms into the family of God and into the kingdom of heaven. City Light, you, our only hope is Jesus and Jesus' righteousness. He's our only hope. And the moment we place our faith in Jesus, we can begin to love God and to obey him from the heart because the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. See, now we can live righteous lives because Jesus has given us his righteousness. Now we can follow the law because Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. So we can now represent Jesus well as his people on earth. There was a pastor that was um, preaching in Russia, and, and the pastor was, was super animated. He was a very excited guy. He would like to, to yell from the stage, but the Russian people, for the most part, are very calm, right? Like, very, very mild. And so the, the two were on stage. There was the pastor and the Russian translator, and, and the pastor would say, Hallelujah! And the, the, the Russian translator would go, Hallelujah. And the pastor would say, Hallelujah! And the Russian translator would say, Hallelujah. And the pastor looks at him and goes, 
You're not preaching. I'm preaching. Your job is to represent me. So you need to say what I say, and you need to say it how I say it. Please. I think he added the please. I don't know. <laughs> he should have. And so the, the sermon goes on, and he says, Hallelujah! And the Russian translator goes, Hallelujah! Or however, however you say it in Russian. But, City Let You, as Christians, we are simply communicating the heart of God through our words and through our deeds. We're representing Jesus here on the earth. So let's be people that say what Jesus says and say it how Jesus says it. Amen? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you came to earth and that you lived the perfect life that we could never live. God, we thank you that you fulfilled the law. And now, God, we, we, we can trust you. And through our faith in you, you make us righteous. God, a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees because it's a righteousness that comes from the heart, a heart that you have changed by your grace. And so, Father, I pray that, that for anyone in here who has not placed their faith in you, maybe they're trying to please you with their works, God, I pray that tonight you would reveal yourself to them. I pray that they would trust you tonight and that you would change their lives forever. And for, for the Christians who have trusted you, God, would we um, return to our first love? Would we remember why we have any ability to obey you in the first place? And that's because of Jesus. Father, would you use us to represent you well? Would we be people that go out on our campuses and where we work? God, would we be people that say what you say and say it how you say it? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Awesome. So we're going to break up into to some discussion groups. So we've got two questions. Um, if you guys want to break up into groups of maybe four, five for a few minutes, we're going to um, look, at these, look at these questions and just discuss them, and then we're going to come back and, and close in worship.